Jury nullification is a process whereby a jury in a criminal case effectively nullifies the law by acquitting a defendant regardless of the weight of evidence against him or her. In short, if you are serving on a jury, you can vote to acquit a defendant if you believe that the person is being prosecuted under an unjust law. If somebody has committed a crime against somebody else, their person, their property, you know, um, their rights, then you're protecting your fellow citizens by making sure that that guilty person goes to prison or pays the price. You're also protecting your fellow citizens when they're on trial and there is no victim, and you find them not guilty because they did not commit a crime against another person or their property, and you think it's just a political prosecution, and it's your duty to set them free. William Penn, I guess, was where it all started. He was out uh, preaching in the streets, got arrested for it. This was back in 1670. And uh, even though it was very clear that he had been doing what was against the law at that time, preaching on the streets, the jury refused to convict him. The reaction of the judge was to send four of the jurors to jail because they hadn't followed his instructions. But a higher court overruled that and said that juries had the right to judge both the facts and the law. And that was really the beginning of the idea of jury nullification in British law, and then it came into American law. Professor Butler, who teaches at George Washington University Law School in Washington, D.C., believes in a concept called jury nullification. The judge would instruct in your legal world, the jury, after talking about the law and the laws that obtain, the judge would also say to that jury, you also have the right ladies and gentlemen, to vote your conscience. The jury has the responsibility, Phil, to do justice. That's why we have a constitutional right to a trial by jury. If jurors don't think the law is fair, they don't have to apply the law. That's a proud part of our American legal tradition. But this is done covertly, isn't it? It's not done covertly, no. If the jury can have the conversation about whether they think justice is being oh, done. In that's, the jury room, you sure, mean? Sure, that's what they're do there but, to do, justice. In a criminal case, when a jury goes back and closes the door, they are a power unto themselves. They can do what they feel is right, notwithstanding what the instructions are. It is what 12 minds determine is, should be the appropriate verdict in that particular case. Pretty simple. You're, you're charged with pulling the unsafe people out of society and protecting the safe people. In the early history of the United States, jury nullification was viewed favorably. One example of jury nullification appeared in the pre-Civil War era when juries sometimes refused to convict for violations of the Fugitive Slave Act. These refusals to convict helped the Underground Railroad operate assisting slaves in their search for freedom. During Prohibition, juries often nullified alcohol control laws. These verdicts contributed to the repeal of Prohibition. Although a jury's verdict relates only to the particular case before it, a pattern of such verdicts could have the practical effect of disabling an unpopular enforcement policy. Governments can make anything illegal, that's the sad thing about other countries. And if you have juries that can reject the laws, and you have the ability to 
prevent the type of bizarre things that happen. This idea, this concept, really gives hope to a lot of people. It's a real eye-opener to a lot. It was an eye-opener to me, and I think it's going to be an eye-opener to a lot of people in the general public not realizing that juries have rights and that, that they have a responsibility, not, not just to deal with that particular case, but also a, res a very deep responsibility to judge our judges and to judge our lawmakers. And uh, it, it's amazing now to me to realize that we went so many years and this was totally neglected. But Larry, I want to start by uh, asking you a specific question. Those who disagree with us that uh, think that this is too much power for the individual, too much responsibility for the jury, they say, oh, this is going to lead to nothing but chaos. They're going to revoke laws and we'll have anarchy. What's your answer to that concern? I can't see any possibility of it, uh, Ron. Uh for the first century that we were a nation, it was routine for the court to instruct the jury that you were judges both of law and of fact. And uh, we didn't have any anarchy or chaos then. As a matter of fact, we had the government under control of the people, which is the way it's supposed to be. And government was a lot smaller, of course, at that particular time. It seems mm -hmm. like they almost have to have these judges protecting the lawmakers, that they can't expose uh, the jury to too much information in fear that they may uh, rule in a, in a different uh, Manner. The jury box is where the power lies, and it's an anchor against tyranny in government. When people look at what happens when the government gets beyond its uh, boundaries, um, beyond its scope of power, well, it, it passes tyrannical laws. Or it passes, when you say tyrannical, it'd be any law that is outside their scope of power. If someone's brought to trial, and what the law says is one thing, but what you feel and you can convey to the jury you know, in, in that room. If it's a bad law, then I think it's up to you, and you know it's a bad law, to express your opinion and state why, and then if the other people agree, then go from there. And then if they disagree, then they need to prove it to you. The way to overturn tyranny in government is in the jury box, which where people just say, we're not prosecuting people for that law. For example, the health care tyranny bill, uh, they call it something else, but I call it the health care tyranny bill because it's loaded with laws or rules or regulations that the government has, the federal government has no authority to actually issue. So, uh, what happens? Well, just say, that's it. I'm not obeying those tyrannical laws. And if they try to prosecute you, it's the jury or the jury pool, uh, the whole jury or one juror that just says, that's it. Um, we're not convicting on this. I'm sorry and then you can overturn tyranny in government simply. And that's the power the founders made sure that we had through the Sixth and Seventh Amendment to the Constitution. And it goes back to John Adams, who in 1771 told the jury that they could disregard the law. It was, it was very important to those who wrote the Constitution, and particularly to those who were opposed or worried about this new Constitution, that there be checks on government. Now, there were a couple of ways that uh, the framers decided we could do that. One was a written Constitution, which had limited powers for the national government. Another was through a system of election and re-election, so that the citizens would always have the ability to decide who will make laws and to change those people if need be. But a very important part of it 
was the jury system. It was a fundamental way of ensuring two things. One, that the citizens, the average citizen, would participate in helping to frame laws and understand how laws operate in their communities. That's the idea of deciding mm -hmm. law as well as fact. In addition, it was a way of keeping an eye on the application of the laws, of ensuring that the citizen was active in the daily uh, implementation of public policy. Those things gradually have escaped us over the years. Well, it starts off with, the, I guess, the voir dire process, and then the judges, you know, basically the judges start asking the jury pool whether or not they will follow his instructions as he gives it to them on the law, and that they're, and he tells them that they're only empowered to judge the facts, and he'll give them the law. If you have, if you disagree with the law, then raise your, you know, hand now. If you are, or such that if you disagree with the law, that you won't, you know, follow my instructions. And so he's excluding people that know that what their power is. Most jurisdictions in this country today, if an attorney stands up and starts making arguments, is telling juries that you have the right to go back and decide as to what you can do and what you can't do. You're a power unto yourself. Start to give the classic jury nullification argument. A judge would stop you as soon as he sensed that was happening, tell the jury to disregard it, uh, sanction the lawyer until the lawyer could be, would be held in contempt of court if he continued arguing along those lines. So it sounds like they're weeding people out if they find out that they know what a jury is there for, what their real powers are. Exactly. So doesn't that put people in the position of pretending like they don't know or maybe even lying? Well, it does, but you know, the there's a way out of that, and it's called a mental reservation. And you can base it on the fact that you don't think the judge is going to give you anything to do that would be, let's say, uh, unconscionable or against your sense of right and wrong, and that you're assuming that the, right, the law is just. If you had been told at the point you got ready to go into that jury room that if you don't think the law fits in this case, you have the right to make the decision based on the fact that the law doesn't fit. Do you think it would have impacted the difference, would have made a difference? Yes. The criminal injustice system will not prosecute people for victimless crimes if they know they're going to start losing them, and they are losing them, because that costs them money. And far too many of the cases are all plea bargained now, because maybe they, what they do is a routine like, if you plea bargain, you'll get two years and, and maybe out in six months. But if you go the, through a trial and you lose, you might get eight years. So people are taking these plea bargains even though they know they, they're being prosecuted for something that shouldn't even be a crime. Jury nullification is not talking about letting a murderer go. Okay. Jury nullification is talking about nullifying tyrannical law. Tyrannical law is any law that's passed outside of the authority of the agency to pass it that violates individual liberty. Those are tyrannical laws. And that is what jury nullification is all about. It's regaining our, our unalienable rights 
through um, that have been violated by abuse of government. If we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. Uh, we were at peace uh, in the Jefferson years, but we were not at peace in the years of the president who followed him. And the president who followed him decided to uh, punch the British in the nose with a couple of skirmishes that were uh, instigated by American warships in the Mediterranean. This would lead to the War of 1812. This would lead to British troops landing here. This would lead to their burning the White House and burning the Capitol building. And quite frankly, what didn't start this way almost became an effort to take back uh, the colonies. We, of course, also attacked British troops in what is now Canada in an effort to instigate this war. So we instigated the war in the Mediterranean and in Canada, and it ends up being fought here. It was fought in the hills of Maryland, where outside Upper Marlboro, Maryland, uh, a platoon of 50 British soldiers was marching through the town when they kidnapped four uh, townsfolk and threatened to hang them. On the night before the hanging, a local militia from the town invaded the British encampment and kidnapped six British soldiers and threatened to hang them. Of course, the hanging of the uh, of the townsfolk was postponed until this standoff could be resolved. How was it resolved? John Hodges, who was the mayor of Upper Marlboro, marched very bravely without uh, any armaments, without any support, directly into the British encampment, introduced himself to the captain and said, I'm the mayor of this town. I'll make you a trade. I have a deal for you. We'll return the six troops. You return the four townsfolk. The captain said, yes. The troops went back to their uh, colleagues. The townsfolk came home. The War of 1812 uh, was ended, not because of this, but at about the same time, the British went home. The new country was preserved. There was a tumultuous parade in Upper Marlboro. At the parade are all local, state, and federal officials, and the guest of honor, the parade marshal, is the mayor because of what he did. At the end of the parade, there's a speech from a podium, not unlike this. The one federal judge in that part of Maryland introduces the mayor and praises him to the skies. The mayor gives a speech. The crowd goes crazy. The mayor walks down off the podium when two strangers meet him. One of them hands him a piece of paper. The other, as he reaches to grab the paper, puts handcuffs, shackles on his two wrists, and they cart him away. They were both federal agents, handing him an indictment for treason, providing aid and comfort to the enemy in wartime by returning the British soldiers to the rest of their troops. What the heck is this? This is the Justice Department deciding to prosecute a genuine, if ever there was, American hero. So the trial comes. The federal judge that introduced him at the end of the parade is the one presiding over the trial. Everybody in the jury had either marched in or watched the parade. The U.S. attorney prosecuting him was also on that day as at the end of the of the parade. So the U.S. attorney stands up and said, well, look, Your Honor, everybody knows what he did. It was an act of treason, even though I, I applauded it at the time. I didn't realize it until um, the passage of time. Defense counsel stands up and says, we know what he did, and everybody in this courtroom appreciated it. The judge then says, I'll show you how different the days are today. Gentlemen of the jury, there were no ladies on juries in those days. It's a, it's a much better system today. 
Gentlemen of the jury, I want you to go across the street to the local tavern where we have reserved a table for you and plenty of liquid refreshment. And when you consume the liquid refreshment, come back here and give us your verdict. <laughs> at, at this point, at this point, the jury foreman raises his hand and says, Your Honor, even though we would love to partake in the court's generosity at the tavern across the street, we don't have to deliberate. We already know the verdict. You know the verdict already? Yes. What is it? The verdict is not guilty. So, of course, everybody in the courtroom goes wild. It's, it's a just and fair result. What was that? That was the first example of jury nullification. That was 12 farmers saying to the almighty federal government, you see this threshold? Thou shalt not cross it if your heart is unjust. Have you ever heard about jury nullification? It's a way for jurors to vote not guilty if they think a law a defendant is being charged with is unjust and shouldn't be a crime in the first place. If you're asked to serve jury duty, this is an outstanding opportunity to judge the law itself. You can veto a bad law by refusing to convict, even if you think the person is actually guilty of said crime. Jurors often choose to nullify laws if there is no victim or if the penalty doesn't exactly fit the crime. Even though judges will never tell you of this little-known right, it is still perfectly legal. Jurors cannot be punished for how they vote on verdicts. Since only unanimous guilty juries can convict, as long as one juror votes not guilty, the defendant will not be convicted and cannot be charged with the same crime in the future. It just takes one juror with a conscience. Jury nullification has been going on for hundreds of years. Northern abolitionists refused to convict slaves from fleeing their masters under the violations of the Fugitive Slave Act. People commonly nullified alcohol control laws in the 1920s. Most recently, it has been used to combat the costly and immoral drug war being waged by the state. In 2012, a New Hampshire man was growing weed in his backyard, and he openly admitted it, but explained it was for personal, religious, and medical use. He was acquitted by the jury, and it was a major victory for true justice. Activists around the world are waiting to see if just one juror has a conscience in the Ross Ulbricht Silk Road trial. He built a deep web anonymous website that others were using to commit victimless crimes such as buying and selling drugs. Ross didn't commit these crimes himself. If he is found guilty, this will be a precedent-setting case for the idea of transferred intent. Tech companies will then start to worry about being held responsible for the content posted on their websites and apps. Many are hoping a juror will vote not guilty and free Ross from the 30 years in prison that he's facing. The Fully Informed Jury Association has recommended guidelines for jury outreach and activism if you're inclined to get involved too. Stay on public sidewalks, offer literature to everyone, do not single anyone out, and remain friendly and calm if confronted. It is only jury tampering if a citizen tries to influence a juror's decision through written communication made about the specific case. Simply informing potential jurors of their rights is within the bounds of legality, although not preferred by the prosecutors and judges. Because quite frankly, they suck. 
If you want to see a really good and funny video on jury nullification, outreach, and activism in action, in real life, I linked the video below. Definitely check it out. Please check out FIJA.org and juryrightsproject.com to learn more about jury nullification. Jim Babb, along with other amazing Philadelphia activists, are raising money to get more posters and pamphlets printed and distributed in the New York City and Philadelphia area. If you would like to donate, please use the Indiegogo link below. Be sure to let me know of your thoughts on jury nullification below. Have you ever had to sit on a jury or know someone who has? How was your experience and did you know about jury nullification at the time? Did you use it? Remember, a juror veto is a peaceful way to protect human rights against corrupt politicians and government tyranny. The National Endowment for Liberty presents At Issue, the in-depth forum on freedom in America today. Hello. I'm Mike Hayes. The host of that issue is the physician, author, and former member of Congress, Ron Paul. Ron? Thanks, Mike. If you've ever served on a jury, you've participated in one of the few times in which ordinary citizens wield real power in our political system. But chances are nobody bothered to tell you how much power you really had. In today's program, we'll tell you some things judges and lawyers don't want you to know. Our program, as usual, will consist of our probe report on what's at issue, reactions from a group of average citizens somewhere in the country, and an in-depth analysis of the entire subject by our panel of experts. We'll begin our probe report, Power to the Jury, following this brief message. A typical American courtroom. Here, day after day, week after week, the laws and the people of our nation meet face to face. In any individual case, it is a virtual certainty that the law was not passed with these precise circumstances in mind. It was passed by a busy legislature with a thousand other things on its agenda and its mind. It won its passage most probably because a majority of the legislators thought it fit their ideological agenda, or would enhance their re-election chances, or was requested by a special interest to which they owed a favor. In most cases, they never even read the actual bill itself. Legislators are government employees, and so is the judge who presides in this room. In the whole process, there are only two points at which ordinary citizens get to make decisions. One is in the voting booth, and the other is here, in the jury box. Here, ordinary men and women make decisions on whether or not to take a person's property, liberty, even his life. They have the power to judge the facts of the case at hand, and when they want to exercise it, they also have the inherent power to judge the worthiness of the law itself. In a criminal case, when the jury goes back and closes the door, they are a power unto themselves. They can do what they feel is right, notwithstanding what the instructions are. It is what 12 minds determine is should be the appropriate verdict in that particular case. These principles date back centuries. A famous case involved the Quaker leader, William Penn. William Penn, I guess, was where it all started. He was out uh, preaching in the streets, got arrested for it. This was back in 1670. And uh, even though it was very clear that he had been doing what was against the law at that time, preaching on the streets, the jury refused to convict him. The reaction of the judge was to send four of the jurors 
to jail because they hadn't followed his instructions. But a higher court overruled that and said that juries had the right to judge both the facts and the law. And that was really the beginning of the idea of jury nullification in British law, and then it came into American law. The Penn jurors struck a blow for religious freedom. In the colonial United States, it was a case involving freedom of the press, which helped establish the right of juries to nullify bad laws. A lot of journalists are familiar with the Peter Zinger case. What they may not realize is that was essentially a case of jury nullification. The jury ignored the instructions of the judge. And again, a very important precedent was set. Half a century later, America's founding fathers recognized the importance of juries to the functioning of a free country. Jefferson called trial by jury the only anchor ever imagined by man by which a government can be held to the principles of its constitution. Up until about the middle of the 19th century, it was standard practice in this country for judges uh, to instruct lawyers and for lawyers to instruct the juries on their right to judge both the law and the facts. And people such as the first Chief Justice John Jay, Thomas Jefferson, and a whole a panoply of famous legal scholars through American history have supported the concept. Today, judges almost never instruct juries that they have the right to judge the law as well as the facts. We've always tried to rely on the, the jury system, but jurors have a innate sense of what's right and what's wrong. That always seems to come through uh, during a trial. But when they go back to the jury room, if a juror has a, receives an instruction of law telling them that they have to follow the law and they don't like the law, many jurors feel honor-bound to do that. Concern about the dwindling power of juries has resulted in the birth of a citizen's campaign to bring about a change in the way judges instruct juries. We're real, real careful to inform defendants of their rights you have the right to remain silent, anything you say, or you use against, you know, all that stuff. We all know Miranda's by heart. We've seen it on television 2,000 times. Right? But they don't read the jury its rights, do they? And jury has plenty of rights. And one of the most important ones is to decide whether the law is just. Most jurisdictions in this country today, if an attorney stands up and starts making arguments and telling juries, you have the right to go back and decide as to what you can do and what you can't do. You're a power unto yourself. Start to give the classic jury nullification argument. A judge would stop you as soon as he sensed that was happening, tell the jury to disregard it, uh, sanction the lawyer, and tell the lawyer could be, would be held in contempt of court if he continued arguing along those lines. So it, there's a very thin line that one has to walk uh, when trying to talk to a jury about jury nullification. But today you are the law. You are the law. Not some book. Not the lawyers. Not a, a marble statue. Or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. If we are to have faith 
injustice. We need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. See, I believe there is justice in our hearts. In the movies, dramatic moments and happy endings abound. But preserving the rights of juries is important in real life, too. Twelve honest people with justice in their hearts sitting in these chairs are the citizenry's ultimate defense against bad laws, corrupt officials, and government tyranny, all of which we surely have today, though we may disagree on exactly how much. Regardless, we cannot afford to see the power of the jury further eroded through design, neglect, or apathy. Sooner or later, the day will come when it will be needed desperately. My jury experience, without anybody really talking about it, the jury began to get a sense of what was just in this. And, and you know, let's not find this guy guilty or not guilty based on the law. Let's find him guilty or not guilty based on whether we really think he should do the time. Each week on that issue, we show the probe report you've just seen to a group of citizens somewhere in the United States. What you're watching are the unrehearsed reactions of people in Tampa, Florida, to the probe report, Power to the Jury. Lawyers were surprised because they didn't think we'd go this way at all. But after talking about it over a length of time, we realized that the guy had obviously broken the law, but he hadn't broken the law, we felt, in our hearts to the, to the point of doing the Sentence. When it came to the decision, what we had with the law that they gave us, we had to make the decision according to that law, and I really was disappointed because I felt that justice was not served because the law did not fit the crime. Okay, if you had been told at the point you got ready to go into that jury room that if you don't think the law fits in this case, you have the right to make the decision based on the fact that the law doesn't fit. Do you think it would have impacted the difference, would have made a difference? Yes. Yes. I really do. If someone's brought to trial, and what the law says is one thing, but what you feel and you can convey to the jury you know, in, in that room, if it's a bad law, then I think it's up to you, and you know it's a bad law, to express your opinion and state why, and then if the other people agree, then go from there. And then if they disagree, then they need to prove it to you. Governments can make anything illegal, and that's the sad thing about other countries. And if you have juries that can reject the laws, and you have the ability to prevent the type of bizarre things that happen. Let's take it one step further, backwards. How did we get into this position? I, I almost think that it's because the judges do not feel that 12 ordinary people are capable of making more than... A guilty or not guilty choice. I mean, throw that third one in and people will not be able to make a choice. And I think that maybe they just don't trust the jury system as, as they should, that ordinary people can decide whether someone's guilty, not guilty, or that the law does not apply in this case. The law is made by, you know, biases, or is it really ethical or, you know, I don't think some of the legislators are very ethical, I guess. Well, I can see how the jury idea here could be used as a tool in the legislative process. In other words, it's like giving feedback to these legislators about what people think about what's going on. I think before any jury 
is a lecture video here. They should see this. I'm serious. <laughs> I really do. I've never been in a jury, and I think it's great that I saw that because I learned a lot about it. Yeah, they actually put in a plug for our show there. Well, let's see how our panel of experts feels about this issue. Dr. Eugene Hickok is a professor at Dickinson College and a resident scholar at the Heritage Foundation. Larry Dodge is the founder of the Fully Informed Jury Amendment Organization. And our host and permanent panelist is the chairman of the National Endowment for Liberty, Ron Paul. Ron, do you agree with the research group that all jurors really ought to see that program? It certainly sounds like a great idea to me. I, I think that's a good deal. And I'm going to do everything possible to get as many people to get introduced to this idea, and I'm delighted to have two experts here with whom I can discuss this with. You know, it wasn't too many years ago I was not very much aware of what jury nullification was all about. Matter of fact, I came across a book by Lysander Spooner, uh, Trial by Jury, and I was really enlightened by this. And this fits very well into any individual, including myself, who at times feels very frustrated about big government. I mean, here we try to improve our government. Uh, we uh, recently talked about uh, uh, reforming Congress and changing Congress, but what happens? 96, 98, 99 percent of them get reelected. So those who are unhappy and need something to uh, do in, in order to change things, I mean, really, this idea, this concept really gives hope to a lot of people. It's a real eye-opener to a lot. It was an eye-opener to me, and I think it's going to be an eye-opener to a lot of people in the general public not realizing that juries have rights and that, that they have a responsibility, not, not just to deal with that particular case, but also a, res a very deep responsibility to judge our judges and to judge our lawmakers. And uh, it, it's amazing now to me to realize that we went so many years and this was totally neglected. But Larry, I want to start by uh, asking you a specific question. Those who disagree with us that uh, think that this is too much power for the individual, too much responsibility for the jury, they say, oh, this is going to lead to nothing but chaos. They're going to revoke laws and we'll have anarchy. What's your answer to that concern? I can't see any possibility of it, uh, Ron. Uh, for the first century that we were a nation, it was routine for the court to instruct the jury that you were judges both of law and of fact. And uh, we didn't have any anarchy or chaos then. As a matter of fact, we had the government under control of the people, which is the way it's supposed to be. And government was a lot smaller, of course, at that particular time. It seems mm -hmm. like they almost have to have these judges protecting the lawmakers, that they can't expose uh, the jury to too much information in fear that they may uh, rule in a, in a different uh, manner. Uh, Gene, as a teacher and professor and someone that's interested in um, uh, constitutional law, is this an issue that's been of interest to you, and how do you see this fitting into our current events today? Well, it's kind of a curious uh, turn of events over the last 200 years. If you look at the, uh, the start of the, uh, the republic, as was demonstrated in the piece before we started our discussion, it was, it was very important to those who wrote the Constitution, and particularly to those who were opposed or worried about this new Constitution, that there be checks on government. Now, there were a couple of ways that uh, the framers decided we could do that. One was a written Constitution which had limited powers for the national government. Another was through a system of election and re-election, so that the citizens would always have the ability to decide who will make laws and to change those people if need be. But a very important part of it was the jury system. It was a fundamental way of ensuring two things. One, that the citizens, the average citizen, would participate 
in helping to frame laws and understand how laws operate in their communities. That's the idea of deciding mm -hmm. law as well as fact. In addition, it was a way of keeping an eye on the application of the laws, of ensuring that the citizen was active in the daily uh, implementation of public policy. Those things gradually have escaped us over the years. That's not to say that we don't have a pretty faithful and a pretty uh, good democracy. I think it's relatively strong. But this important aspect of it is missing. And uh, that's one of the reasons why the debate that we're having today is so important. Would, would this help us any, when it, uh, in any way when it comes to administrative law? So much of our law now isn't even in the regular courts. So few of our cases actually end up in the jury. And, you know, you take the IRS and other agencies, we don't have a trial by jury. Yeah. Uh, Will the movement that you're heading up, Larry, help us in that way, or is that something that would come later? How do we deal with it, the problems of the administrative law that we have? Well, administrative law can, of course, be challenged in court, and sometimes effectively is. And in some cases, as in tax law, if you do something bad enough, you do get a jury, and then you can go ahead and make your case to the jury that the law is bad. At the present time, that is a problem. Wherever you don't have a jury, you have a problem in controlling the government. This harks back to the Navigation Acts, uh, an early uh, part of our nation's history. In fact, before we were a nation, the British decided that we were supposed to route all trade through England and, and pay duties and taxes on it. Um, but colonial juries would routinely let sea captains go, acquit them, uh, for disobeying you know, the, the Navigation Act. So the British responded by inventing courts that didn't have juries courts of admiralty where they could go ahead and have trials that didn't have juries because they very well realized that if the jury were able to make its decision, uh, they would reject these laws. And so the same problem is here with us today, and it does need to be dealt with. Yeah, I, I think the, the regulatory morass that we live in today and the, the need for administrative law cannot be uh, uh, dismissed easily. I mean, the fact is we have a far more complex world and a far more complex society than we did 200 years ago. On the other hand, that's also one of the major reasons you should argue for a stronger trial by jury system. Because in the end, uh, it's a way of empowering citizens and a way of, of helping to make sure that most law isn't written by bureaucracy. And I guess uh, we have plenty of that today, and yeah. if we don't do something soon, I don't know what's going to happen. I think we're going to be overrun by the bureaucracy, and we can't even attack this bureaucracy if we can't get the people to speak out. If they feel frustrated with the election, elective process, this obviously is an alternative method whereby they can put restraints on big government. Ron, this is a good time for us to perhaps take a short break, hold that thought, and we'll return with more. Gentlemen, we're back. Before the break, we, uh, we, we came to a pretty obvious conclusion. One of the things that interests me is, how did the whole idea of trial by jury begin? Where did this all start? I, I think that's an interesting point because I think it's a little bit older than uh, even our country. I know that our founders were uh, well informed about it, and they incorporated it into our system of justice, and they endorsed it. But uh, when really did this come about? It was for a few years before. Oh, sure. It goes, it, it goes way back to the uh, English tradition and uh, the Magna Carta. The whole idea was that uh, under a system of laws, the individuals who are supposed to be uh, the objects of those laws help to frame them. That's what the Magna Carta was all about. And the trial by jury system was a way for individuals in a small town to help to decide and implement the laws that govern that town. Larry, how, how do the judges prevent the jury from getting the information, and how would this work? I mean, let's say we have this concept uh, reintroduced and it's accepted. 
how does the jury even make the decision on what they want to hear? The judge now comes up and if there's information, he'll say, well, that's inadmissible in court. Well, how, how in a practical sense would this come about where the jury could demand or ask for or get more information? Well, we are uh, holding conferences that discuss what access the jury will have to the evidence and uh, enlarging the amount of evidence and the degree of evidence and so forth that the jury can review before it makes a decision is definitely one of the points. So we've actually formulated not just a one amendment which would require that the jury be told it may judge both law and fact but a series of them we're calling the the bill of jury rights one of which would give the jury access to the full range of evidence they need to make their decisions and uh, of course they would be emphasized that they could rule on the on the on the law as well on the law as well this is uh, the reason that's been forgotten and is not used in fact uh, uh, the, the juries are now told that they may not judge the law stems uh, from a decision by the Supreme Court in 1895 uh, called the Sparf and Hansen decision where the Supreme Court decided that juries no longer had to be told that they had the power and the right to judge the law. So it would be up to the judge. Uh, fortunately, uh, people have remembered over, over time that part of the job of being a juror is to use your conscience so they sometimes take the risk and do it anyway. What's, uh, what's your idea about a voluntary jury? Is there any merit to considering uh, making jury duty voluntary rather than compulsory? I think there's some merit to that because you're talking about individuals who have stated that they have an interest in the administration of justice in our system. Uh, one of the problems with the current jury system is you do sort of draft people and, and that always carries some, uh, some problems with it. You know, one of the, the real benefits of a reinvigorated trial by jury system along the lines we're talking about is it might remove some of the mystery surrounding the legal process. It might open that process up and help more citizens understand both its benefits and its problems. Folks, our time's getting a little short. I'm going to need to wind this up. So let me ask each of you to comment on the short run for a moment. Gene. Uh, What's the next step? What's the first thing that ought to happen to bring more power to the jury? I think one of the things you can do is, in addition to programs such as this, is try to talk more about the notion of citizenship. It's a very common idea. It's a very common uh, argument, but it's not heard much anymore. And if you talk about citizenship, and not just in terms of going out and voting and registering to vote, but in terms of one's obligations towards self-government and how trial by jury and jury service is one of those fundamental components of self-government, you might begin to erode some of the mystery behind what's going on and help to improve the situation. And Larry, you've been living and breathing this issue for quite a while now. What's at the top of your wish list? Well, Mike, we've been out in the streets trying to get a law passed by citizen initiative that would require judges to tell the jury you have these powers that you don't know about formally. Um, we also, we of course then encourage people to get involved in that. One way to do that would be to contact the National Endowment for Liberty and ask uh, how to get involved uh, with our citizen initiative or with the legislative process where we are trying to get the legislature to require by law that juries be so informed. Other than that, there's a number of informal things that can be done. We have literature to pass out and some people are just standing out in front of courthouses handing literature to people and educating them on site, which seems to be working. Ron, finally, what's your view? Well, I think obviously we have to uh, have informed citizens if we're going to have informed juries, and that's the key to it. Uh, they must be informed when they vote. They ought to be informed and willing to serve on juries. I uh, like the idea of a voluntary jury. I think that goes along with uh, freedom ideas. I think our greatest obstacle is overcoming the arrogance of judges. And if we have enough jurors who are well-informed and willing to serve, I believe we can achieve that.
Well, that's where we'll have to leave it. I want to thank our panelists and you for being with us. We'll be back next week for another vital topic at issue.